Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. We'll, 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 we'll try and not keep it too, too grim whilst still being grimly accurate. I'll try and say everything in an upbeat way. <laughs> <laughs> and jazz hands. So I am thrilled to welcome back onto the podcast, friend of the pod, uh, Matthew McGregor. Matthew is a uh, longstanding political campaigner, activist. Um, He worked on the Barack Obama 2012 campaign as the digital, I don't know, head of digital stuff. What was it you did? (laughs) I was the digital rapid response lead. (laughs) The the, the truth guy. (laughs) Yeah, we we actually had a we had a thing called the the Barack Obama Truth Team, which <laughs> sounds a bit Orwellian, really, isn't it? I think I was on the Truth Team. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much for your service. <laughs> um, since then, Matthew Matthew has worked in a number of other organizations, but since two thousand seventeen, uh, he works for an organization called Hope Not Hate, which is a charity dedicated to combating extremism, and you know, hopefully, I say I think fair to say not just combating extremism, but hoping to uh, create a more positive civic society. Um, And so unfortunately, as part of that work, Matthew has had to learn a lot about the other side of the not so positive civic bits of society. Um, And so we wanted to talk today. Um, So Matthew, as we were saying just before we signed on, not not a particularly cheery topic for today, but we'll we'll try and keep it as upbeat as possible. Yeah, it's a bit bit of a change from um, the hopey changey uh, Obama campaigns that I was in, involved in, um, but these are these are tough times and the challenges need confronting. So here we are. Yeah, it's changey, but not, not maybe not so hopeful. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, so. I, I think maybe let's let's kick off with that because I think to those of us who are just distance observers of the rise of of right wing extremism, um, it has felt like there has been a significant increase in that during the Trump administration and in the, the months leading up to the Trump administration. Um, is that an accurate perspective, or are we just skewed by kind of the greater focus on it? Um, I mean, yes and no. Um, far activity seems really high, and we'll discuss that during this, this this pod. But I think it's important to put what feels like a very scary time at the moment in historical context. You know, um, far right, ethno nationalist, um, white supremacist activity is literally older than the republic itself and it's important to put the what's happening now in that context so on one hand you know there's been far-right murders in the united states in the past well organized uh, uh far-right militia um throughout the country's history um you know even in recent times um before before trump the the, the terrorist attack in oklahoma city was the biggest terrorist attack um on u.s soil before 9-11 um, so it's, it's important to put this in context. This isn't that Trump turned up and things went really bad. Trump is in some ways a symptom of and a um, a driver of uh, far-right activity. But of course, it's a totally different matter for the literal president of the United States to encourage and ferment 
uh, the situation. So in the past, you've had you know, state governors um, who have been uh, sympathetic to or collaborating with the KKK um, in the uh, opposition to the civil rights movement and integration and so on in the past. But it's never it's never reached this level before. Um, so I think that's the really big difference. Um, and it is uh, uh, fueled from the Oval Office and also um, facilitated by uh, new tools that far-right uh, uh, activists and people who are uh, um, uh, receptive to those messages have in the space of uh, social media. You know, that is, a, that is a new development as well. Right. So you talked about how it's kind of fomented from the White House itself. And I think for me, it has been really striking how the president isn't doing any of the kind of disavowal sort of you know um the sort of slight distancing that you know previous um previous right-leaning figures used to do in american politics but how how close does the trump administration seem to be to the actual kind of far-right extremists that we're talking about i mean do they have are the links direct or is it more all of a kind of a hint and a nod um i i, I sort of think all of the above depending on on who you're talking about i mean you, I think it's important to separate Trump the individual from the Trump administration and um, they have been uh, lax or well lax in stopping or welcoming depending on uh, you know how um, uh, how you want to look at it uh, of far-right people coming into the administration there have been numerous examples of individuals who have uh, far-right backgrounds or or sympathies with uh, far-right views or people who are willing to spout far-right talking points um, getting positions in the in in the administration with Trump personally you know there's I think there, there will always be a debate over whether he is cynically stoking uh, uh, white supremacist and and racist and and other far-right uh, themes and memes for his own selfish purposes or whether he personally is a white supremacist and a racist and you know you can't see into somebody's head uh, you, you know is is, the, is that, that question is he a racist or does he continually do racism um it, it is a moot point because the outcomes are the same right yeah. um so i uh, you know I, I do think that i think is you know unambiguously a, a, a statement of fact to say that the trump administration and the president himself have stoked these uh, issues why they're doing it is is kind of a moot point because the outcomes are the same and the the violence uh is occurring and the and the attacks are occurring regardless of the motivation so you've mentioned the long and inglorious history of far-right extremism in the United States, of which you're absolutely right, it goes right back to the founding. Um, but we've seen kind of some new movements, or I guess new faces on some old movements um, springing up, you, things like the Proud Boys, various conspiracy-minded groups. Um, could you just give us a, a quick a quick whistle-stop tour of kind of what are the main major, what are the, what are the greatest hits <laughs> of the contemporary far-right movement? Yeah, and I, I, I definitely will. Um, but I think it's I think it's worth saying um, before I, I do that that um, it's important to think look at this from the point of view of far right ideas that are being mainstreamed and far right organising that is going on. Um, but on the on the organising first, I think there's um, sort of two or three different buckets that I, I would uh, point to. The first one is sort of far right, um, uh, extreme right. Um, conspiracy theory type uh, groups. Uh, QAnon is the is the most sort of uh, high profile. This this uh, sort of uh, 
conspiracy theory alleging that uh, Donald Trump is waging a secret war against a cabal of pedophiles, um, satanic pedophiles, uh, who are involved in a conspiracy to kidnap and torture children. I mean, it's uh, obviously when you say it out loud. Wait, what? Yeah, when you say it out loud, it obviously um, is really, really extraordinary and um, almost incomprehensibly stupid. But um, there is this conspiracy theory that has grown up and is being exposed by a secret figure inside the administration called Q, who is anonymous, hence Q Anon. Uh, and it has developed a real following of um, tens of thousands of people on social media, uh, many of whom have now been taking part in um, anti-child trafficking protests, anti-fax protests, anti-mask protests. Um, and this is a, a really worrying trend because, I mean, it, is, it, it, it has its roots in anti-Semitism and other forms of um, white supremacism, but also it's got this literally made up weird nonsense around it. So um, that's, that's, a big, that's a big one. And then there's um, street gangs you mentioned the proud boys uh there's also uh who, who just uh, for those people who, who don't know them they're kind of a, a street fighting gang of um uh young men uh, or men um who grew up from a kind of an anti-feminist uh perspective and have become increasingly uh aligned with the wider far right uh and they uh predominantly uh seek to uh, confront on the streets uh, anti-Trump protesters and violently attack them. There's also uh, other uh, militia type groups. Um, one is not a group per se, but it's of, of, of an online movement called the Boogaloo Boys, who uh, think that there is a civil war coming. And it's a very weird sort of on, a mixture of far-right ideology and internet culture. So they, they talk in very strange sort of internet meme kind of language. They wear Hawaiian uh, patterned shirts alongside their camouflaged bullet belts and so on. And um, you, you'll see them in protests uh, uh, work, carrying uh, long long arms, uh, rifles, um, uh, AR-15s and so on. And you can you can tell who they are because of the Hawaiian uh, shirts. And, and there are other uh, similar uh, street militias, um, the the uh, young man who, who murdered two BLM protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was a member of one of those street militias. Um, so there's a range of these groups that are growing up. But as I said, I think, you know, those groups are uh, need to be kept. Uh, you know, we need to track them and see what they're doing and analyze what they what they're saying, what they might plan. But I also think it's really important to look at what is happening with the normalization of far-right ideas and you can really see this and and the way it's promoted and pushed by trump and other republican leaders in the um uh decline in support for blm protests so if you look at polling from earlier this year uh, uh, soon after the murder of george floyd um there's really quite high levels of support for um what the blm protesters were were calling for um uh not not quite bipartisan but there were you know support in the sort of high 60s low 70s and that's really declined now to sort of 50 50 um with democrats supporting the protest movement and republicans opposing it and uh the pushback against so-called rioters and looters and all of this you know racially coded racially tinged language racist language to push back against the blm protesters is normalizing 
uh, racist ideas within the more what would have been traditionally mainstream uh, right wing in the country. And so I think that that one of the dangers is these the, the violence and the street movements and the organized far right. But another uh, threat we need to be alive to is the normalization of far right ideas and themes within what were previously relatively mainstream groups of voters. Right. So you're saying it just sucks either way, basically. <laughs> it, it, it sucks in two different ways, you know. In a way, in a, you know, in a way, you know, on one on one level, if you have a gang of people who are seeking to um, confront protesters or a- attack uh, uh, campaign workers or whatever it might be, that is um, identifiable. Um, and there are uh, clear um, law enforcement or political campaigning or, or whatever else it might be uh, uh, mechanisms to challenge that and push that back. If you are getting Republican voters who are not that politically engaged, they vote and you know they're members of their community and on their own they are being radicalized through the language that Trump is using or a support for Trump from their local Republican electeds or through what they're reading on Facebook. And they are personally becoming more and more right wing or attracted to fire ideas. That is so much harder to push back on. That is so much harder to, you know, it's not identifiable. There, there's no, there's, there's not as many mechanisms for that. It's almost like, how do you put an entire community of voters through a de-radicalization process? You know, that's, that's, that, that is a different and very challenging uh, issue. And I think we need to think of both of those, both for this election, but also, you know, this is a long-term thing. Biden winning in November is not the end of this uh, challenge. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because one of the questions I was gonna have is, is dr- to draw us a picture of who are the people who are being attracted to this, this especially kind of far-right radicalism. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is, it's, it's not just, you know, perhaps vulnerable young people, who young men who might be drawn in by, you know, moving from Gamergate conspiracies to Pizzagate or whatever nonsense. It is the entire kind of traditionally mainstream, you know, right wing party, which is, it sounds like you're saying, because the ideas are becoming ever more radical, people are becoming ever more radicalized within that. Yeah, and you know the, the the sort of who is being radicalized and in in what ways they are being radicalized. I, I don't I don't personally feel um, there's a big area of expertise, and this is a this is a good point to segue to to say that I, you know I really would encourage people to look at what the Hope Not Hate team are, are writing, um, uh, follow and subscribe to um, Control Alt Right Delete. Uh, which is written by uh, Melissa Ryan, who's a, a really big expert in this area. The Anti-Defamation League, the um, CSIS, Political Research Associates. There are lots of people out there who are doing lots of really detailed um, work on this, and, and I want to pay tribute to them and encourage people to to see what they're saying, because, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm not the expert on this. Uh, you know, different people are being radicalized in, in really different ways. The Trump base is... Um, is somewhat shrinking, but they're becoming more extreme. And so, um, you know, the kind of people who go to rallies um, are, are, are going on a journey with him. He's not alienating his base. He is uh, taking them on a, on a journey. Um, the, the kind of people who are being attracted into um, kind of QAnon movements and so on, um, they're, they're not 
they're not the kind of people who traditionally would have joined the KKK or the you know the um, white council or group or whatever it might be locally. Um, they're regular voters, and I think that's a that's a really big worrying thing is that access to this kind of radical information, uh, radical propaganda is 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 right there uh, online, easy to find, often not obvious either. You know, a lot of the um, uh, protest uh, uh, campaigning work that QAnon has been doing recently is really just about being against child trafficking. I mean, this sort of, I'm against child trafficking, you know, <laughs> it's like it's a, right. So it's often it's, it's not obvious um, that it's there. So, you know, I, I, you know, there's some really good research out there about who, who is being attracted to this stuff. But the, the one thing I would say is, um, this isn't kind of um, skinhead, knuckle-dragging morons. This is um, uh, being targeted at regular everyday people. Yeah. And so, what if? And I guess this is the this is the big question that you know to which there probably isn't one answer. But well, what can we do about it? Because it seems to me that what you're describing is in a situation in which you've got lots of different forces driving in the same direction towards increasing radicalization, even including the kind of fundamentals of American politics with negative polarization and partisanship. You've got a media environment where both kind of social media algorithms as well as the kind of financial incentives of people like Fox News are all pointing in one direction. As citizens and as voters and as activists, what are the kind of tools that we have to push back against all these tendencies? Um, it, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you put it like that, it, it, it can feel very overwhelming. It can feel um, uh, like we're quite powerless. And, you know, I, I do think that, um, especially around this election and, and its um, potential outcomes, responsibility really does fall on quote-unquote moderate republicans um and institutions like the military and business to make sure that um uh you know to protect uh, democratic institutions democratic processes it's also a really really big moment for the media especially social media and uh, particularly facebook they have a tremendous responsibility in this um really fraught moment and i think it's important not to be inflammatory about predictions and what might go wrong and everything else but um, it is a fraught moment and those institutions and those people need to take it really seriously. But bringing it down to sort of an individual level, I would say, you know, firstly, people should educate themselves and um, those around them. Um, we as individuals are really powerful messengers to those people who know us and trust us and like us. And I think most people, um, uh, even those of us who are sort of on the left, progressives, um, uh, sorry, it's a really warm day here. <laughs> and I've got my window open and the sirens are blaring past. Um, we all know people who are who might be susceptible to this uh, kind of stuff. And so just talking about it, not in a kind of hair on fire way, but um, this is happening. Um, this is a good thing to read. This is what you should think about. Um, uh, you know, that is a that is an important uh, place to start. And it can often feel a little bit small and you can often feel like you're nagging or, you know, don't want to get into an argument, but trying to find ways in which you can have sober conversations with those around you and educate yourself about what is happening is a big, big start. Secondly, um, thinking about ways in which you personally can uh, be a voice uh, and try to pressure those elite institutions like Facebook, 
uh, and other social media companies like local electeds um, uh, or other institutions, um, it's important they hear your voice. Um, and so um, standing up in those moments and saying, you know, even if it's for the 50th time Donald Trump has said X or Y, um, making sure that your local uh, people, um, you know, you can reach out to, no, you won't accept it. No, you don't think this is normal. No, you don't think this is acceptable. And then there are like more activisty ways of of getting involved. I think that you're particularly supporting organizations that are putting, promoting voter registration um, and the other um, ways in which we can try and protect the integrity of the election. Um, you know, even be a poll voter. I don't know how many, how many of your listeners are, are US based, can't do that from the UK, but um, literally signing up to be a poll voter is a, a really important um, thing. Um, they're under uh, resourced, they're often understaffed um, and definitely under thanked. Um, so, um, you know, being a poll voter and trying to, you know, sign up for one of those roles, they, they advertise them around now. Um, and then lastly, I would say, or no, actually penultimately, uh, uh, sign up for organizations that are preparing for post the post-election period. Um, there are inst uh, organizations, campaign organizations that are um, preparing for uh, how to mobilize in the post-election period. Look for them, sign up for them. Uh, and then lastly, I would say, um, I think, you know, there is a worrying time, but I think it's quite important to try and stay calm and um, be really thoughtful about what is actually happening and what is your role in what could your role be in trying to tackle it rather than panicking about what might go wrong in the future you know it is a fraught time and donald trump is incredibly uh um dangerous but there are ways in which we can do things to try and push back and so you know maintaining our composure i think is an important part of getting through the next few months certain keep calm and carry on vibe <laughs> making sure the carry on piece happens so um I don't want to mitigate against your recommendation that we not dwell on all the horrible things that could happen, but I do think we need to talk about the election itself. Yeah, um, yeah. Here's <laughs> where I completely contradict everything I've just said, because there there are dangers. There are yeah. some dangers, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just leading up to this election, being aware that it's, it's obviously a particularly fraught election anyway, we've got some structural weaknesses in democracy, um, and then, of course, we've got an election that's taking place during a pandemic, um, there's already been lots of concern about the security of the vote and the security of ballots. There seems to be a partisan divide between who's going to vote in person, who's going to vote in mail, which could, by mail, which could create things like an election night with, um, you know, strong Trump lead at the end of election night, even though Joe Biden is a clear winner as one possible hypothetical. What are the kind of major risks going into the election and um, what role would you be expecting some of these groups that we've been talking about to play? Yeah, yeah, I think it's important to separate out the the dangers that there are um, from the pandemic, from, you know, the Postal Service being on its knees and, and, and uh, uh, other ways in which Trump or Republican um, state parties are trying to engage in voter suppression and, and other things separate that out from what the far right might do you know the republican party is engaged in voter suppression for a long time way before um uh, donald trump arrived uh republican party nationally or the new jersey state party i can never remember um, how broad the court order was but um uh, republicans were banned from going near uh polling stations because they were intimidating voters uh, in 2004 
like this has been going on for a long time. Georgia made a voter ID requirement and then closed down DMV offices in uh, African American majority counties. This has been going on for a while, and it's important to separate that out from what the far right might do. But the far right will um, take advantage of those things. They will take advantage of um, disorder uh, uh, and um, uh, protests in the run-up to the election, and they will take advantage of uh, confusion and inconclusivity, if that's a word, um, uh, on election night and in the immediate period afterwards. So I think the worries are, um, that some of these groups are in, are engaging in voter suppression. They are engaging in um, attempts to intimidate uh, campaign workers. Um, it is not very, very widespread, but we've seen, um, uh, especially, especially in the Pacific West, um, militia groups organizing, you know, ad hoc, uh, you know, uh, checkpoints and stopping cars, ostensibly on the basis that they're worried about uh, Antifa, um, in, uh, you know, starting wildfires and you know this is really crazy stuff but um it is resulting in uh militia on the streets intimidating people that's not been really widespread and i think that uh, we haven't seen um lots of that but it's important to keep a, a, an eye out for it um i think we should also um be concerned about voter intimidation and voter suppression on election day um uh militia uh, groups or, or other campaigners seeking to picket uh, uh places where you can vote to intimidate postal workers um again this is not um you know, it's important to keep the threat in perspective. This is something we need to, to keep an eye on. And I think the, 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 the big worry that a lot of people have, have identified is um, that gap between when votes cast on the day accounted and when votes that have, have come in via mail accounted. And um, you know, Donald Trump said in August, the only way we are going to lose this election is if this election is rigged. That's a quote. Donald Trump said that in mid-August. That is a message that is being pushed to his supporters. And so... Um, they are attempting to lay the ground for the, the exact kind of um, uh, uh, confusion and disruption that you um, that you, you mentioned. I think that's a, a really, really big problem. The, the far-right militia that are out there, the, the white supremacist groups and, and others that we've talked about, they don't have a, like a symbiotic relationship with Trump. He's not, you know, um, doesn't communicate directly with them, but it's kind of a call and response kind of relationship where he will say things that trigger a, a, a reaction and so i think we are likely in the event of a uh, of a close uh, result or, or, or an inconclusive result on the night um we're likely to see social media being deluged with conspiracy theories we're likely to see people making wild allegations about um postal votes um about the deep state george soros antifa uh, etc and that will prompt some people to go out and um, uh, potentially take, uh, 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 you know, uh, confrontations or street protests or, or whatever else it might be. And that's where I think the those elite institutions I talked about, the police, the military, business, the media, have a really big role in trying to uh, mitigate things. Um, it's obviously a worry. Um, we've seen the behaviour of some police departments, of ICE, of of other law enforcement agencies, uh, incredibly problematic, incredibly racist, violent um, behavior. And so, you know, when I say everyone should try and um, stay calm, I don't mean we shouldn't worry, 
because um, I think it is a worry what 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 could happen. But um, we need to prepare and we need to analyze the situation and, and be ready uh, rather than you uh, do anything to inflame the situation. Yeah, I mean, part of the difficulty for uh, for pre- preparing and thinking ahead to how to overcome some of these problems is that we're not necessarily in control of some of the institutions that we're talking about. I mean, you've alluded to organizations like ICE, but even, you know, I mean, at a state level, you know, governors might, you know, they might very well have an excellent state state, state police force, et cetera, that's prepared to intervene. But then you might, you know, Trump might actively potentially deploy a federal law enforcement agency, um, you know, potentially against its own government. It, you, you can imagine scenarios that feel very civil war and then they don't seem that implausible yeah i mean it, it, it is, it's, it's a worrying time I'm not, I'm, I'm not i'm not um i'm not disagreeing with that um it is a it is a worrying time um i, I also i also think that you know this isn't just about trump you know you look at what's been happening in florida with attempts to um uh purge um uh, people with convictions from the uh from the voter rolls, the uh, Trump stacked high court in that state, uh, effectively imposing a, a poll tax that cannot even be paid um, uh, to exclude those voters. Um, there have been voter roll purges. Look what happened in Georgia in 2018, where tens of thousands of people were removed from the uh, voter rolls um, for not existing, but they they did uh, uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, behavior. Um, th- there is a really deep-seated problem within the Republican Party towards uh, effective democracy being allowed to run its course. Um, so, you know, the things that you outlined that Trump could do are there, and we need to, we should worry about those and, and um, do what we can. But this is a broader issue within the Republican Party as well that predates Trump and, and um, won't go away just if he does. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, um, I mean, the short answer is that the the best hope that we have in addition to thinking about our institutions and kind of encouraging all these signals is make the election be as not close as possible. <laughs> in other words, you know, the bigger the turnout, you know, securing a significant majority for Joe Biden um, is probably safer for the overall future of American democracy than a narrow victory, which is probably infinitely contested. So that's one thing is let's all, you know, get out there and vote. Thing two is, you know, we might need to think about structural reforms to the entire political process after this. Um, should should Democrats be elected, which, you know, God willing, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like we can be complacent about the fact, as you were saying, it isn't just Trump. These are long standing um, efforts both within what it, you might call the mainstream and the, and the far right of the party to um, put, put us under threat. So what, what types of things might be effective at a policy level potentially? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think you're exactly right. Um, American democracy was not tremendously healthy uh, even before um, Donald Trump got elected. I mean, I, th- I think there's, there's a really, really wide range uh, uh, of issues and Democrats cannot uh, assume that if Joe Biden is inaugurated um, at the end of January, that you know it's a, a light a, a light switch has been flicked and we're back to back to normal. Normal was no good, and the last four years have happened and cannot be uh, re- reversed. I think that um, 
you know the democratic system is 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 wobbly the electoral college is no longer fit for purpose um the fact that the washington dc and puerto rico and, and and other places are excluded from the democratic process in almost entirely is is a big issue the role of big money in in politics is a huge issue um the uh, access to the vote is a is a really uh, big issue not just voter suppression but even if you took away voter suppression access to uh, voting is is not good enough you know just at, at its most flippant the fact that some states uh, voting ends at 6 p.m i mean is is these are these are these are small things but they all add up and they are the smallest of many things most of which are much larger um you know there is a really really long list um uh, the United States needs uh, a, a democratic audit and a democratic overhaul that is um, healthy for its own democracy and would be a bulwark against uh, uh, Trump returning and the far right uh, 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 making an impact, even if it, um, you know, democracy is an incredibly powerful tool against uh, fascism. Um, and the fact that uh, Trump is in office is partly down to the weakness of the United States democratic processes and institutions. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a that's good marching orders for all of us, um, and uh, we all need to be thoughtful about the fact that this this will not end after the election by a long shot. Um, Matthew, have you got a few minutes to just play the gut check game? I have. Excellent. I have. <laughs> For those who are new to the podcast, I have in front of me some slips of paper in which I have, I always pull out sort of things heard around the campaign trail or relevant to the topic. Um, and we just read them out and we just randomly react to them. Um, this week, um, I have, uh, I, I, I've, I've gone down an internet rabbit hole, <laughs> spent a bit of time learning about conspiracy theories. So in my, in my uh, trusty Red Sox baseball cap, I have uh, some Wikipedia about some of the more prominent conspiracy theories of the Trump era. Um, I can't quite believe most of them even exist. Uh, so I'll just read out a few of these and we can react. Um, the first one. Oh, okay. So here's one. Pizzagate. According to Wikipedia, Pizzagate was a widely discredited news story which linked Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign with a fictional human traffic ring. It's, so, it's human trafficking ring. It's so-called because the alleged headquarters of the operation was the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., which, according to this conspiracy, was also a meeting ground for satanic ritual abuse. Hmm. This is. I think Pizzagate is like the the standout example of of these new cons or these conspiracy theories that have emerged during the Trump era. That I think people like us, you know, well educated, you know, fairly rooted. I'd like to think you kind of hear that. And you, my first reaction when I heard about that is to laugh out loud. I mean, it's sort of it's so extraordinary. So it's almost slapstick in its silliness. Um, but they are really dangerous. Someone who read that conspiracy theory and believed it went to uh, that pizzeria with a firearm yeah. to to search for the alleged basement in which children were being held and to free them and to kill the people who worked in the pizzeria. And uh, he was a, he was stopped and arrested. But, you know, these conspiracy theories actually prompt real life action. You know, they kind of. Um, it, it seems too silly to take serious, but we have to take them seriously because other people are. You know, it's it's a it's really frightening. Yeah. 
terrifying. I mean, I think just, yeah. I mean, it doesn't have a basement. So first of all, it's <laughs> not a basement. All of this is based on, the, the basis of the whole thing is based on emails by John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's then campaign manager, that were leaked, that were about them arranging to use that pizza restaurant restaurant for a fundraiser. It's as if someone like broke into your emails and found you emailing your local pub about trying to book a night there for a friend's birthday party and someone turned it into a conspiracy theory about you being a child rapist. It's like, how do you get there from here? Yeah. There's no, yeah. no route. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the past, uh, I, I, I don't think all of the ills of society today can be put at the feet of social media, but in the past, one or two people could have that like extraordinarily you know nutty i you know conspiracy theory and no one would ever hear about it but um this stuff really is spreading and people are picking it up because they have ready access to it in a way they wouldn't have had in the past here's another one um i've pulled out this is the deep state right right, Trump loves right. The state. The deep state is a conspiracy theory which suggests that collusion and cronyism exists within the U.S. political system and constitute a hidden government within the legitimately elected government. This this one's a little bit this one's a little bit more difficult. It's more complex, right? isn't it? Yeah. This one is a bit more complex. It's less slapstick for a start. <laughs> I mean, there are there are institutions of government. Yeah. Um, uh, in most countries, secret service, uh, you know, signals intelligence agencies like the NSA or GCHQ, uh, you know, these people are civil service, right? They are run by individuals who talk to each other and, you know, go about their business and um, sometimes don't agree with the views of the government of the day. Um, you know, we've had this, you know, I'm sure most countries have, um, we had this in the UK in the 60s and 70s where there was a view by some that MI5 was uh, really anti-Labour. Um, I think the, I think the, 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 the line that Trump crosses is this idea that they are they represent a a shadow government and that they are uh, organized and are uh, attempting to take him down um there's there's no evidence for that um but yeah that's a bit more of a complex one isn't it yeah, yeah. i mean the idea that there are people within the government who might not like and might actively work against the behaviors of elected officials is kind of probably true like it's not <laughs> You know, you don't have to be deeply conspiracy minded to think that, yeah, I would assume that's probably the case, you know, and, and for any particular party interest. But Trump has turned it into kind of his catch all excuse for whenever whenever he gets institutional pushback. So that's the thing. I, I, I would take this distinction of, yes, it is almost certainly true that people within the government, within the security state, within the military forces, within, you know, even just long standing civil servants probably have their point of view and might try and get it across in various ways. Right. Um, but Trump uses it for whenever an institution tries to institute the to, to impose institutional norms, he takes that as his pushback. So it's actually more complicated than a conspiracy yeah. theory. It's really a, a kind of just a rejection of sharing power in any way, shape or form. It almost it almost speaks to the fact that Donald Trump is not speaking the same language as the rest of the of the country when it comes to what what is democracy, what 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 are the powers of the president, uh, you know, and doesn't understand the constitution and how the, the democratic institutions work. But, you know, there is, there, like you say, there's something to the, the, you know, the idea that there is a, um, uh, there are institutions. One of my favorite books 
um, when I was a teenager was a very British coup written by Chris Mullen, a Labour MP um, who was a, a government minister under uh, Tony Blair. Um, he wrote about a fictional Labour leader winning elections, uh, winning an election in the in the 1980s and the challenges he faced as prime minister from MI5 and the army and the media and so on. And it's a, it's a brilliant book, very entertaining, very good film too. Um, so that's not just a, a, a right wing idea or fear. Yeah. Um, we talked about QAnon already. The Wikipedia description of QAnon describes it as QAnon is a far-right conspiracy theory alleging that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles running a global child sex trafficking ring is plotting against President Donald Trump, who is battling them, leading to a, quote, day of recording involving a mass arrest of journalists and politicians. No part of this theory is based on fact, says Wikipedia. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing about um, some of these conspiracies that have conspiracy theories that have, have gained so much traction is they really are based on nothing at all and so it's quite hard to sort of argue with it you know this the with the deep state you can argue about the extent of the powers and and the activities of actual real people in actual institutions and what they're doing and were they allowed to do and so on yeah what might they really be thinking and is it legitimate but, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, Q you know, QAnon is like trying to argue with someone who thinks that you know reptile aliens have taken over the planet. I mean, how you, there's no argument there. How do you how do you deal with that? Well, you know, the president of the United States disagrees with you, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> no, this is what Trump says about QAnon. Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, which I appreciate. I have heard that it's gaining in popularity. I've heard these are people that love our country and they just don't like seeing all this unrest. Yeah. He's marketing for QAnon. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's yeah. I mean, it's just that that's, that's, that's impeachable for any other president in, in U.S. history yeah. except this one. Utterly, utterly beyond a pair. Um, Matthew, I'll finish off on, on an oldie but a goodie. <laughs> here's, um, here's one that I'm sure you had to come across quite a bit in your previous role as, uh, as previously discussed, digital truth, tr truth champion for the Obama campaign. <laughs> Birtherism. Uh, oh, yeah. That, that, uh, that, that basically was Trump's first, first great political moment. Birtherism. The, the movement falsely asserted that Obama was ineligible to be president of the United States because he was not a natural-born citizen of the U.S. as required by Article 2 of the Constitution. Birther conspiracy, theorists were conspiracy theories were predominantly held by conservatives and Republicans, as well as, I love this, individuals with anti-black attitudes. Right. That's a lot of words to say one, one right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And racists, right, right, yeah. I mean, birtherism is. I think I'm sure people have heard so much about that um, and are familiar with it. The thing, you know, that really underlines the point we've 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 discussed a few times in this in this episode that you know what Trump is doing and saying is not is not new. That the Republican Party has been here before. He he was a driver of birtherism, but it wasn't him alone. And after he had promoted birtherism. Mitt Romney accepted his endorsement in his 2012 campaign for president of the United States. Republicans have either encouraged or acquiesced in that kind of racist conspiracy theory in the past. And so, you know, I think it's just really important to not see Trump as some um, uh, 
uh, uh, unique and standalone uh, phenomenon. The other thing about this, just not to go down a, a weird constitutional rabbit hole here, but as an American citizen who was not born in the United States, I have a bit of a... a um, can, well, I have a... <laughs> There, there, the, the, the theory that natural born means born in the United States has not been tested um, as, a, as a hurdle for the presidency uh, in the Supreme Court. It's, it's, a, it's a legal theory. Another legal theory is that natural born means a citizen at moment of birth. And so citizens of the United States who were born to two United States citizen parents um, overseas, uh, there is a legal theory that they are natural born too. It's never been tested in the Supreme Court. So um, the fact that uh, uh, someone isn't born in the United States isn't, in my view, an impediment to them uh, I, becoming president of the United States. I, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but um, I have, unfortunately, because of my many years of being a spokesperson on behalf of Obama uh, against some pretty insane, batshit, crazy shit, um, I've I had to dig into this. And I can tell you that there are many strains of birtherism. But but the principal underlying claim that one strain of birtherism is making is not that Obama is not eligible by virtue of having been born outside of the United States, but that he's not eligible, they would claim, because his mother could not pass on citizenship to him because at the time she was underage, she was 17. And at the time, it, like you can go on forever with this stuff. And that there was there was indeed, it's true to say, a federal law that changed how citizenship could be like at that time, minors could not automatically convey citizenship to their children. They've got this whole thing about it. It's all absolute nonsense. And of course, he was born in the United States and so forth. <laughs> so That's many, the key point, isn't it? Like, yes, all of this is nonsense, but they have reason. Like, it's it's like it's so much more fun for them to like come up with really complicated legal theories when you can just be like, yeah, but that's not true. Like, none of that is true. So what's right? And I think that's the thing about so many of these conspiracy theories is what they what they almost always boil down to is 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 racism of one kind. Uh, quite often, anti-Semitism in particular, but um, in this instance, anti-black racism. Uh, that is at the heart of so much of this stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, and and that is not a new phenomenon in this country, and it's certainly not a new phenomenon specifically as it relates to Donald Trump, who's been, you know, anti, who's been an individual with anti-black attitudes going going way back. Right, right. Uh, well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. I know you've got another call to rush off to, but I I really appreciate that, and um, we will. Uh, and if, final thought, where should people go to get more of this information and find out more? Um, I, I think that uh, uh, people should uh, take a look at um, uh, control all right delete uh, hope not hate .org .uk, uh, the uh, uh, anti-defamation league um, uh, also read the publications from um, uh, uh, political research associates uh, who we're big fans of uh, uh, a Massachusetts based progressive think tank. If you are not in the United States, go to votefromabroad.org and make sure that you are registered to vote and research uh, organizations close to you who are preparing for post-election political action in the event that the result is inconclusive. Wonderful. And we'll put links to some of those things in the show notes. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And that's it. 
As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Karen Jr. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Um, folks, if you haven't yet requested your absentee ballot or um, received your absentee ballot indeed, um, if you don't yet have a plan to vote, then get on that. Think about how and when and where and how you're going to vote, whether it's early in person, whether it's on election day, whether it's by requesting an absentee ballot. If you're an American abroad, you want to go to votefromabroad.org to get your ballot. If you're an American back home, it's vote dot org. Make sure you sort it out. And finally, I should let you know this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me and I wish you a very happy week. <laughs>